0: Ben Greg dominated, and the Zags once again shot it well from beyond the arc to move to 2-0 in the WCC with a 101-74 win over San Diego. And we're wondering once again if this is the sign that the Zags are back in business. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome into the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag Athletics. Today's Mailbag Monday episode is brought to you by Jace Medical. Empower yourself when you purchase a Jace case, providing you with a personal supply of five antibiotics that treat over 50 infections. Get yours today at jacemedical.com. Well, Ben Gregg dropped a career high 22 points. Graham EK almost had another 20 and 10 game, finished with 19 and 8. Ryan Nemphard and Nolan Hickman combined for 35 points, 13 assists, and just four turnovers in Gonzaga's route of the San Diego Toreros on Saturday. We are doing Mailbag Monday today. Got a lot of great questions about this game, some great questions about other topics as well. So, gonna just hammer through those all today. Again, if you wanna get involved, in Mailbag Monday, you can reach out to me on uh, via Gmail at andypatton 13 at gmail.com. But the best way to do so is to join our Discord channel. There is a link in the show notes. It is completely free. We have game threads where we're all chatting throughout the game, all game long. It's fantastic fun. There's also a spot where you can drop your mailbag questions to ensure they get answered in the show. Many of you asked about the three-point shooting. That was Jeff and Christian via Gmail, Austin via Discord, all asked a variation of the same question. Whether Gonzaga's recent barrage of three point shooting success is a sign of things to come, whether it was sustainable long term, whether it's just a product of opponent quality. So, we're going to talk about that. Gonzaga, 10 of 23 from distance against San Diego. That is good for 43.5%. That percent, excuse me, that is coming off a very, very excellent three point shooting game against Pepperdine as well. Obviously, the outside shooting has been an issue. For Gonzaga throughout the season, throughout the non-conference, they had some some games where they shot well, some halves where they shot well. We saw a lot of uh, like decent thirty-ish, thirty-five percent shooting in the first half, and then they don't make a single three in the second half. That was something we saw a handful of times early in the year. Uh, it's very nice to see Gonzaga really put it together in these last couple of games, and and ultimately, I think it's kind of a combination of multiple things. Uh, for starters, I think it's positive regression. We talk a lot about regression to the mean in, in sports of like if a guy's outperforming he's going to regress back to a more normal spot. You know if a guy's hitting 350 at the beginning of the season in baseball and he's normally a 230 hitter, he's probably going to regress back to being closer to a 230 hitter. But I think a lot of people don't think about positive regression. If a guy's a career 35% three-point shooter, for example, and they're shooting 15% at the beginning of the season, there's probably going to be some positive regression. And I talked about it a handful of times on the podcast. And I know it's harder to it's harder to think about that because you think, oh, like a guy, this guy's playing well, but he's probably going to slow down. It's a little bit easier to, I think, conceptualize that. But if a guy's normally 35% and he's not making any threes, like, and, and, and this is the key with Nembhard in my mind, is he wasn't taking bad threes. He made one three in December, one against Arkansas Pine Bluff on the fifth. He went 0 of 13 after that were one of 18 for the month. Just a horrible shooting month from distance for Ryan Nembhardt. But they weren't bad shots. Not to say that some of them were, oh, he rushed that one a little bit or he just had to get something up because it was the end of the shot clock. There was a few of those. But for the most part, Ryan Nembhardt, very cerebral basketball player, was taking good threes. He was open. It was a set play that got him a good look. And they just he just wasn't making them. So in my mind, that The fact that he has now been blistering hot against Pepperdine and San Diego, he shot four of five on Saturday. He was two of three on Thursday. Like That, to me, is is a lot of ways positive regression. They were good looks, and he just made them. He just knocked them down. They didn't look dramatically different from the shots he was taking in December against UConn, against San Diego State, against USC. They just they just went in the bottom of the net instead of not going in the bottom of the net. Somewhat similar story with, with Nolan Hickman. He wasn't nearly as bad as Ryan Nempard coming into this last week, but he was a little below his career averages. Then he goes 4 of 5 against Pepperdine. He goes 3 of 8 against San Diego, bumps that average back closer to his career norm. So I think some of it is just regression in a positive way. I also think that some of it is a bit opponent quality. I think that doesn't mean that Gonzaga is going to suddenly forget how to shoot threes against St. Mary's or in the WCC tournament or in the NCAA tournament. It doesn't, also mean that they won't. That could happen. But I'm just saying, I, I do think San Diego has been a historically bad three-point shooting team. They, they've been a little better this year, but they were not good last year under coach Steve Lavin. And I just don't think that they're particularly good at defending the perimeter. Kentucky got a lot of really open looks. Pepperdine is not a good defensive team. They haven't been a good defensive team for a while. So I do think that that helped. I think being at home helped, being more familiar with the rims, although one of these games was, of course, at the Spokane Arena. So I do think that there was some some home cooking some confidence boosting some opponent quality and then some positive regression and i think all of that kind of lumped together led to this blistering hot shooting uh, weekend or week. We'll see what this looks like on Thursday against Santa Clara. They're a decent defensive team. They got some length on the perimeter. I think they've got more likelihood of being able to impact some shots in ways that that these two teams weren't able to. But Gonzaga building that momentum, going into a week where they only have one game, they don't play next Saturday, they only play Thursday on the road, I think could help Gonzaga potentially continue this streak of, of solid, productive outside shooting. Question number two comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, what positive changes have you seen lately that are cause for optimism? Well, we'll uh, ignore the three point shooting. Cause we've already touched on that. That's obviously a significant one. Uh, I've been really happy to see the way that Gonzaga has been utilizing Graham K the last four or five games. And they've util- they've used him well throughout the season. I mean, he's, nobody expected him to fully replace Drew Timmy in terms of overall production and efficiency, but he was brought in to be Gonzaga's low post score. They've always had a player that they go to on the block on, in the half-court offense. This is how Gonzaga's offense has, has operated since Mark Few took over as the head coach. It's how Casey Calvary was used. It's how Rony Turioff was used. It's how Rob Sacre was used. Shema Karnowski was used. DeMontis Sabonis was used. You get the picture. It goes on and on and on. And the expectation was always that that would be EK's role. But lately, it feels like they've kind of ramped it up even more. I think part of it is the more often they can funnel the offense into the post, the easier the job is for Ryan Nempard and for Nolan Hickman. And those guys whatever we can do to make their life a little bit easier on the basketball floor is fantastic because the depth still is not there. You know, Gonzaga is not magically going to add a point guard. I guess in, they kind of will when Luka Krainovich gets healthy, but he's not going to then be thrust into a big role. The odds of him playing big minutes at all this season are pretty limited because he may not be back until early February. So Gonzaga is going to need to find ways to, to to give those guys a little bit of a break. And I think funneling the ball to EK, letting him go to work. If teams are not going to double him, which San Diego doubled him a bit, but Pepperdine did not. Let him go to work. Just give him the ball and let him go. That's been a huge development, I think, is that more usage of Graham Ike. Maybe he's got his feet under him a little bit more. His conditioning's a bit better, and they feel more comfortable giving him the rock. That might be where that change has come from. But 20-10 against San Diego State, a really good physical team, is a, kind of a, a jumping-off point for him to potentially put together a WCC Player of the Year type of campaign. Uh, This team has also improved dramatically as a free throw shooting team from where they were earlier in the year. That's been a huge development as well. Uh, Graham Ike is a great free throw shooter. And so for him, as somebody who is going to get fouled a lot, he's going to get to the line a lot to to be productive in that area is good. Anton Watson has not been good throughout his career, but he's been a little bit better lately. Uh, So seeing this team be better at the free throw line, especially when they're playing teams in the WCC who tends to be slower than them, who tend to not have as much size as them, that has often led to gonzaga getting. to the charity stripe quite a bit. So improvement in that area is very important. Outside of that, I really like Gonzaga utilizing the three-quarter court defense. Something we've seen, we saw a lot against San Diego State. We saw it a bit in these last couple games as well. They like to bring Jun Sukio in and have him help with that, I think, to get some extra energy coming off the bench to give some of the starters some rest. Uh, I'd like to see that be something that continues to happen throughout the season. Uh, and even if they're not in the three-quarter court, just the activity on defense. Poking the ball loose, like going for steals. Sometimes you commit fouls that way, and we saw Yo do that. We see Dusty do that. He's good for one or two of those per game. Uh, but I like that as opposed to a uh, kind of a, a defense where you're just playing 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 back you're on your heels you're not really the aggressor you're more reacting i prefer this brand of gonzaga basketball defensively and they've been doing it kind of throughout the year but in particular i think against teams that are turnover prone like a lot of the teams in the wcc uh, getting after them putting some pressure on them trying to get them to turn the basketball over it leads to easy points in transition it gets the crowd going it does a lot of good things and i think we've seen some of that from gonzaga already this year Final question here of the first segment comes from Austin via Discord. Austin Austin says, San Diego hit nine shots from beyond the arc. I don't think it was bad defense, just good shots. What are your thoughts? Yeah, pretty much that. Uh, Deuce Turner is phenomenal. He's one of the best guards in the the conference. Every year the WCC has these like undersized – high-scoring, you know, ball-first, score-first guards. I mean, you th- throw it all the way back to Anthony Ireland at LMU. Uh, you throw it back to Alec Wintering at UP, Jared Brownridge. Like, they, they've these guys have always existed. More recently, Jamari Bouye, Khalil Shabazz at San Francisco. I mean, Marcus Williams is currently that guy for the Dons. Like, these guys have always existed in the WCC. De- Deuce Turner is of an iteration of that. And again, This San Diego team without Deuce Turner, you take away his four of seven from three. This team was five of 16. That's not very good. You take away Kevin Patton who had a nice game. He's a very good young freshman in the conference. He was two of three. You take him away. They were three of 13. Deuce Turner is good. And Nolan Hickman worked his best butt off to defend him as well as he could. And Deuce Turner had a good game, but guess what? Deuce also dropped 34 against St. Mary's, allegedly a much better defensive team than Gonzaga. Not sure I buy that this year, but if Deuce is going to drop 34 on the Gales, you know that Nolan Hickman had to work real hard to keep him far under that number in this game. He still made some tough shots. There's certainly not every shot that they made from deep was, was well defended. There was Ben Gregg phenomenal game from him don't really mean to nitpick too much but he had a, a situation where he just played a little too far off a three-point shooter his perimeter defense is still an area he needs to improve on and frankly he's not normally asked to do that so I don't think it's a, a problem for him necessarily but again sometimes they hit good shots sometimes the defense lacks nobody has ever perfectly defended every three-point shot in a college basketball game that's just not how it works uh, And the San Diego team was not particularly good at a lot of things uh, in this contest but they are a good three-point shooting team and they made him pay a couple of t- in this game but overall gonzaga is holding opponent opponents to 31.3 percent from three on the year that's going to surprise a handful of you who seem to think that uh, teams shoot extraordinarily well against gonzaga that is not always the case and again 31 percent for opposing teams this year is phenomenal for the zags well can nolan hickman become the team's go-to late game scorer we're going to discuss that and dusty stromer's development all coming up after a word from today's sponsor FanDuel. As the weather gets colder, the college basketball offers stay hot on FanDuel. And right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 bucks in your pocket. If your team wins. So, if you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time than right now to get in on the action. The app is really easy to use. There is a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over unders, and more. And as it is Monday and National Championship Day right now, the Michigan Wolverines are five and a half point favorites at FanDuel to defeat the Washington Huskies. I know we don't like the Huskies here on Locked on Zags, but I'm rooting for them. I think they're going to take this one. So, if you want to join me and betting, on the Huskies. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn and get in on the action this college basketball season. FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. All right, segment two, still Mailbag Monday here on the Locked On Zags podcast. We're going to get going here with a couple more questions from you from listeners. This one comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, watching Dusty Stromer play and the struggles he has had as a freshman remind me of Corey Kispert, who played a lot as a freshman in the 2017-18 season against a difficult non-conference schedule. Could we be seeing a similar progression with Stromer? Maybe we don't see it till next year, but the potential seems to be there. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I think we will see a similar progression if we're just simply talking Player A going from this to this, from X to Y to Z. But Dusty and Corey are not super similar players. They play the same position. They're both wings, they're both threes. Corey was a three who also played the four. Dusty is a three who also plays the two. I don't think Dusty's ever going to be a small ball power forward in Gonzaga's offense. I don't think he wants to be that. He did play a little bit of four in high school, but He's, he's much, much skinnier than Corey Kispert. Obviously, Corey filled out. Uh, Dusty will, too. But they're not really similar players. And beyond the, the positional differences where, again, Dusty's a 3-2, Corey's a 3-4, uh, Corey was an offensive player who was adequate on defense. Dusty is a defensive player who's adequate on offense. And while I think development will happen for him in a similar way to the, how development happened for Corey, I don't think it's going to turn Dusty into a 15-point-per-game scorer, a 44% three-point shooter. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe those things do happen for Dusty, and that would be great. But I think what more likely is going to happen is Dusty is going to become more versatile. He is going to be uh, uh, continue to, to grow as a defensive player, get more steals, uh, take – you know, take more appropriate risks defensively, become a locked down on-ball defensive player while improving in certain ways offensively. I don't know that he becomes a locked down three-point shooter. Again, maybe. Maybe that happens for him down the line. He is a quality three-point shooter, and we've seen that improve. But I don't know that he's ever going to get to, like, you know, that level of, like, elite, like, you're going into the NBA as a lottery pick because of your ability to shoot threes. That's what happened to Corey Kisper. That development for Dusty Stromer, again, not impossible, but I think less likely. What's more likely is that Dusty turns himself into a really versatile do-it-all type forward who can play, uh, who's, who's good on defense, can guard two threes and fours, uh, and who's, who's versatile enough on offense to be a backdoor cutter, to drive in and have that little floater game, like just kind of have more versatility. It's worth pointing out that Dusty was a much, much higher regarded freshman coming into Gonzaga than than Corey. Corey was a three-star prospect. He was not even in the top 100 of his recruiting class. And part of that is just the recruiting services were wrong about Corey Kispert. But I do think that Dusty having this kind of pedigree coming in could indicate that his growth, his development could even help him in a more significant way and put him in a position where he doesn't have to be in college for four years before he starts actually getting NBA attention the way that Corey did. Ultimately though, I do believe Dusty is a player who starting as a freshman and starting in a, in a way where he wasn't expected to, which is kind of what happened to Corey. He got thrust into a starting role, a bigger role as a freshman than expected. That is a big similarity between both Dusty and Corey. And I think ultimately it helped Corey's development long-term. And I do think that it'll help Dusty long-term as well. And I think we will see him continue to improve this season. But for those of you who are thinking, like, this question kind of implied Dusty's struggles. I don't know that Dusty struggled all that much. Like, I don't think that, like – if if you think that he's a struggle, he's struggling because he's not scoring that much. I think that you're just misinterpreting his role. Like I don't think Dusty's expected to score that much. His some of his best games this season, he's had like six points, eight points, but he also has five rebounds, three assists, two steals, uh, only missed one shot, didn't turn the ball over like that. To me, it's kind of like a supercharged version of Mike Hart in a, in a way. Like I, I don't think that. That the expectation should be, well, Dusty's not scoring enough, so he's struggling. That I don't think that's true. I think ultimately as his role develops in future years, he becomes more of a scorer, but I don't think that's going to happen this year. I don't think that's what's being asked of him this year for Gonzaga. Next question comes from molaskis on Discord, who says, do you think Hickman can be the dude the Zags need at the end of games? He seems to score effortlessly early, but runs out of gas towards the end of the game due to fatigue. If few can figure out how to get Hickman more rest early, can he be the guy to close out games for us? Yeah, a lot of people just make the assumption that it's fatigue. I don't know. We're not talking to the players. We don't necessarily know what's going on in those situations. I will say against San Diego in particular, uh, Nolan Hickman worked his butt off to defend Deuce Turner. So I do think there was an element of like, hey, I'm, I'm exerting more of my energy Energy on defense. uh, And that's why I'm not exerting as much of it on offense. He still had a, I mean, he scored 17 points against USD. But yeah, I do think that that perhaps um, there is an element of exerting more energy in the first half than in the second half um but you know i don't I, unless we're talking to the guys i don't know that watching on the watching from the tv we should be able to tell how fatigued these guys are necessarily but a lot of people like to to make those projections as to where they think those guys are at but um i do think no one is the best go-to guard option for getting a bucket but if Gonzaga just needs two points they should go to grammy k I don't think the ball, I don't think Nolan is the guy you want doing that necessarily. I think it's Graham. And I think Anton is second. Uh, Nolan is a, a, a Hooper. He's like, he's got a kind of a, a, like a street ball type game to him where he can just like, you know, put the ball on the deck, uh, try to shimmy past a guy, get to the rim or like do a step back three. Like he's got a lot of that kind of elements to his game that, that like Ryan Nemhard doesn't necessarily have, although he can, he showcases it at a time, certainly not dusty Stromer, but I think, If you just need two points, you get the ball to Graham E.K. He's the guy that that should get the ball. And if Graham's not in the game because he's in foul trouble, because uh, whatever it may be, I think Anton is your next option. I think Nolan's probably third, but I don't really think there's a lot of great things that Nolan Hickman does, and certainly I'd like to see him be more effective late in games. But if he's locking up all his energy defensively, I don't want him to be that go-to guy uh, offensively late in the game. Final question of this segment comes from Nope, Not Me on Discord, who says, Joel Ei has the only triple-double in Gonzaga history. If you were told it was going to happen again this year, who do you think it would be and why? Love this question. This is one I get a handful of times, and, and honestly, I don't ever get tired of it because I think triple-doubles are cool, and I like speculating on them. But to be honest, this year's team doesn't really have any super obvious candidates to post a triple-double, at least not in my opinion. I, you, I think Ryan Nemhard's the most likely, as certainly statistically this season, he's the one who's kind of come the closest to putting up triple-double type stats. He's averaging 12.5 points, he's averaging 6 assists, he's averaging 4.1 rebounds. In theory, that kind of points to somebody who could get to 10. Obviously in points, he's gotten to 10 in assists this year already, so we know he's capable of that. 10 rebounds for a six foot point guard on a team full of guys much bigger than him. Seems a little unrealistic, but I don't think it's crazy. Nemhard also plays 38, 40 minutes a game. You know, one of the reasons that Gonzaga hasn't had very many triple doubles is because they typically happen in blowouts and Mark Few pulls the starters in blowouts. Like he, he was, had to be coerced to leave Joel in the game long enough to even get that triple double against Portland a few years back. So I think Nemhard's combination of skills and the fact that they don't have an obvious backup for him is makes him very probably the most likely player. Again, if the in the spirit of the question, if I was told, "Hey, somebody on this team is going to get a triple double this year," I'd probably guess Ryan. My second guess would be Anton. Uh, Watson's been you know a college basketball player, and he's in his fifth season, and he's his career high in assists is eight, so he would have to get a significant amount of assists, and but he's capable of it. He's absolutely, I mean, again, eight assists. He's gotten seven a couple of times. He's clearly capable of getting all the way up to 10. He's had double doubles. He can get there in points. He can get there in rebounds pretty easily. So I think those are the two most likely candidates. I don't see it with Dusty. I don't see it with Nolan. I don't see it with Graham. I don't really see it with with Ben or Braden. So I think the only really likely candidates would be Ryan or Anton. Uh, And if I had to guess one of them, I'd think it's most likely to be Ryan. We're closing out the show today with more mailbag questions. We're talking about the state of the WCC and more all coming up after a word from today's sponsor, Jace Medical. I know we come to sports to escape some of the crazy realities of life, but can we talk for a minute about preparing for when those real-life things happen? Because according to the FDA, pharmacies are running out of antibiotics like amoxicillin right in the middle of the worst flu season in over a decade. And I can't imagine a more helpless feeling than if someone I loved was getting sick while a supply chain issue kept them from the life-saving medication that they need. Thankfully, there's Jace Medical. The Jace case is a pack of five different antibiotics to treat a long list of bacterial illnesses, including UTIs, respiratory infections, sinusitis, and skin infections, among others. This could happen to any of us. So visit jacemedical.com and complete your physician encounter. It will be reviewed by a board-certified physician, and your medications will be dispensed by a licensed pharmacy at a fraction of the regular cost. It's never been more important to be prepared than it is today. So go to jacemedical.com, use promo code on to get $20 off your order. All right, folks. Closing out the show today with three more mailbag questions. This one comes from Hartman Zag on Discord, who says, Can the WCC still be a two-bid league with San Francisco and the Zags? Yeah, I don't really see it. I don't really see it for San Francisco. I think St. Mary's is more likely to make it than San Francisco. I don't really think any of them have a particularly good case uh, outside of winning the WCC. Whoever wins the WCC is in. I'm not sure that anybody else is. I think it's possible that either San Francisco or St. Mary's, if they win every single game, they beat Gonzaga twice, they beat each other twice. Uh, they you know don't lose any quad four games, don't lose any other games to anybody else, and then lose to Gonzaga in the championship Maybe, but even then, here's the kicker. The Mountain West has five teams that are probably going to make the NCAA tournament. Five. Five of them. San Diego State is in barring a a huge collapse. Colorado State is in barring a huge collapse. Utah State and Nevada are both one-loss teams. New Mexico is a two-loss team. All five of those teams are in the top 35 of the net. Even if the worst-case scenario for the Mountain West is probably four teams. Mountain West is putting four or five teams in the NCAA tournament. There's not room for a second WCC team, and neither of St. Mary's or San Francisco's resumes doesn't, doesn't hold a candle to any of those teams at this point. Not even close. Yes, St. Mary's has a head-to-head victory over New Mexico. That's great, but their resume is not nearly as good. San Francisco's own one in quad three. They're one and one in quad two. They got one win between quad one and quad two. That's it. That's all they have. I just don't see it. They also went into overtime against Pacific. They're one of the 20 worst division one teams in all of college basketball. I, San Francisco pulled out the W and I don't think they'll lose to, to Pacific again, but who's to say they won't lose to Pepperdine or San Diego. If they lose any of those games, they're out. Like their at large. hopes are completely vanished. St. Mary's I think has slightly better odds because they have better wins, but they haven't proved. I mean, they, they, almost lost to LMU Dominic Harris tripped going to the to the bucket if he'd made that lay that thing might have gone into overtime they might have won so I don't see an at-large bid for either St. Mary's or San Francisco as being particularly likely if either of them were to upset Gonzaga it's possible if Gonzaga also you know beats Kentucky and doesn't lose until the WCC championship Gonzaga probably gets in as an at-large bid but I think that's the only way that it happens I think this is most likely at this point going to be a one-bid WCC. Next question comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, "Could the additions of Oregon State and Washington State make it more likely the Big East will get aggressive towards potentially adding Gonzaga this summer?" Yeah, I, I don't think that the Oregon State, Washington State additions to the to the WCC really influence other conferences in terms of their pursuit of Gonzaga. The Big 12 is continuing to pursue Gonzaga. That doesn't seem to be any different. They have not changed their urgency, their desire, their timeline, anything like that with the news that Oregon State and Washington State are joining the WCC. I don't think the Big East is going to either. I don't don't see really why they would. Uh, It's a two-year deal with Oregon State and Washington State. I don't think anybody expects it to be beyond that. I think the expectation is that they'll be in the conference for two years. After that, they'll have sorted out enough of their legal issues with the other, you know, former PAC schools. They'll have sorted out their issues with the Mountain West, and they'll likely do a reverse merger with Oregon State and Washington State, absorbing effectively the Mountain West, uh, probably minus a few schools, turning that into the new look PAC-12. That's what I expect to happen. I don't have any insider information other than what's publicly available, but that seems like the likely way that this is going. So folks are not looking at the WCC and, and really seeing anything dramatically different other than a two-year stopgap where they add two programs in Oregon State and Washington State, the changes to the rules are actually going to be anti-Gonzaga in the sense that they won't have the double buy in the WCC tournament. They'll have more conference games, which means less non-conference games for Gonzaga. They'll have they won't have a bigger as big of a piece of the pie from all of the the units NCAA tournament units. So those negatives for Gonzaga, I guess, could make Gonzaga a little bit more urgent to look outside the conference. But I don't think that makes the Big East more urgent to add them or the Big 12 more urgent to add them. So I don't really see it; those things necessarily being related. Having said that, Big 12 still, again, remains interested. I do think the Big East could become involved. I've said that on here a handful of times. Again, no real insight or information on that. Uh, other than the Big East is about to start renegotiating their their media rights deals. And I think there's a chance that Gonzaga's really weighty TV power. We know that they're one of the most prolific college basketball programs from a television perspective. That seems like it would be incredibly appealing to a conference looking to renegotiate and make some more money going forward. Uh, I do think that if there is any kind of realignment that is impacting Uh, Gonzaga's future home, whether it's the Big 12, the Big East, staying the WCC, the reverse merger, uh, I think it's what's happening with the ACC. That seems more likely to be impactful, whether the ACC does dissolve entirely, if that means that the Big East tries to get back Syracuse and Louisville and programs like that, whether that means the Big 12 tries to get involved if, if the SEC doesn't want Florida State or Clemson, what happens to North Carolina. Like, There's a lot of factors that the ACC will have a big impact on the Big East and the Big 12. And I think that that is more likely to have an impact on Gonzaga, probably in a negative way, where they're less likely to rush to add Gonzaga until they wait to see what the heck is happening with the ACC. Final question of the show here comes from Christian. Via Gmail, Christian says, what do you as a fan do when you know you're not going to be able to watch a game? I was flying home from a family trip and watched BYU Cincinnati because ESPN Plus was not available. I've tried the delayed gratification and watching it later approach, and it feels like a postponed cruise, a half birthday party, or a tie with no overtime. Yes, taking a little shot at soccer there at the end, Christian. But, yeah, I I don't really miss games, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. Uh, I haven't missed one this year. Um, It's my job, uh, and it's I would watch them regardless. Certainly, I don't want to imply that it's not something I look forward to every single game. It absolutely is, but it is my job, and and what I mean by that is that I plan around the games, and you know my family plans around the games. So we have a a a baby shower coming up in February, and I said February tenth, that's out because of the Kentucky game, and so we planned around that. And so missing games is just not something that happens to me all that often. Um, I miss two games last year. I missed, I think only one game the year before that. Um, sometimes they're on my wife's birthday and it's like, we've missed the game because of that. Uh, but I don't usually rewatch full games when in instances that I do miss games, usually I will watch highlights. I'll read recaps. I'll kind of get a sense of what happened that way. Uh, it does depend on what I need to do in, in terms of talking about the game, on uh, you know, on the show, but for the most part, I, I try to avoid missing games. Um, Rewatching games or watching them afterwards is certainly an option. A lot of people do that. Some people watch Gonzaga games twice just anyway, um, or whatever team that they cover, like some of my, my, my colleagues at Locked On will watch games twice to get a, a different sense of the game. I've typically not done that, uh, but I, I do think that there is value in rewatching a game, but usually if I miss it, I'm going to get a recap in some other way, but like I said, right now with it being uh, being in the very fortunate position I am to be able to call watching Gonzaga basketball games something I've done religiously since 2009, getting to call that a part of my job is, is pretty cool and something that I don't take lightly, and it's why I do whatever I can to avoid missing games uh, when, whenever possible. That's going to do it for me today here on the Locked on Zags podcast. We'll be back on Tuesday talking about the AP poll, uh, and then we'll be back later in the week, recapping the first WCC action, also getting a preview, of course, of that game against Santa Clara, on the road on Thursday, all coming up on Locked On Zags. Thanks for making the show your first listen or your first watch of the day. Uh, Join us on the Discord channel if you have not done so yet. It is free and available in links in the show notes. So check that out if you haven't already. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, as always, go Zags.